Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, the great Sheila Hicks. The Nashery Sculpture Center in Dallas is presenting Sheila Hicks' Seas Weave Space, an exhibition that presents often sight-engaged work both inside the Nasher and in its garden. The exhibition, which was curated by Lee Arnold, is on view in Dallas through August 18th. Also, in Miami Beach, Florida, the Bass Museum of Art is concurrently presenting Sheila Hicks' Campo Abierto Open Field. It's on view through September 29th. Hicks, who has made fiber the foundation of her practice for 60 years, is one of the world's most celebrated artists. Last year in Paris, where Hicks lives, the Centre Pompidou presented a retrospective of her career. Her last American retrospective was in 2010, an exhibition that originated at the Addison Gallery of American Art before traveling to the Institute of Contemporary Art Philadelphia and the Mint in Charlotte. By the way, the catalog for the Pompidou show is particularly great. Amazon offers it for $31. If you have any interest, go get it. This program was taped before a live audience at the Nasher. I think you'll hear plenty of Hicks's verve, her love of a crowd and the moment, her rule-breaking, and her insistence that everyone have a good time with her work. You'll even hear her uh, ask for a high-heeled shoe from the audience. Sheila Hicks, after the break. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston continues its annual summer series of immersive exhibitions. William Forsyth, Choreographic Objects, transforms the galleries into a series of performance spaces welcoming visitors of all ages. From a monumental environment of shifting pendulums to a single object held in the hand, Forsyth's work blurs the lines between performance, sculpture, video, and installation, connecting participants to the organizing principles of choreography. Now on view, visit mfah.org slash Forsyth for more. Brooklyn songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, and singer La Rain makes her Los Angeles debut June 22nd in the Getty's annual outdoor concert series off the 405. Enjoy an evening of 90s R&B, musique concrète, and ambient soundscapes amid stunning architecture and sunset views. Learn more at getty.edu 360. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Sarah Lucas O Naturel, the first American survey of one of the UK's most influential artists. Featuring some of Lucas's most important projects alongside new sculptural works created for the exhibition, O Naturel offers a rare chance to see more than 130 works in photography, collage, sculpture, and installation that have never been shown together in the United States. Sarah Lucas O Naturel is on view June 9th through September 1st at the Hammer. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Hammer Museum. Free for good. This summer, the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents Disappearing California Circa 1970, featuring works by artists Bastian Otter, Chris Burden, and Jack Goldstein. The exhibition, curated by Philip Kaiser, examines the shared common interest in themes of disappearance and self-effacement, manifesting in works that were daring and often dangerous, on view through August 11th. The Modern is also featuring David Park, A Retrospective, organized by SF MoMA and curator Janet Bishop. This is the first major museum exhibition in more than 30 years to present the artist's powerfully expressive work. David Park is best known as the founder of the Bay Area Figurative School. On view September 22nd. Visit themodern.org for more information. Sheila Hicks, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I want to start with something that's not in the show here in the Nature, but that is foundational to your practice. Starting in, I think, the late 1950s, early 1960s, you started making a series of work you call Menemes 
They're tiny. They're roughly and broadly speaking about the size of a, of, of a hand, top to bottom and, and width. And I think that there are hundreds of them, right? Thousands. Thousands? <laughs> wow. Uh, the curator of the retrospective of yours at the Pompidou last year, Michael Gautier, called them, I love this phrase, embryos of the creative process. How did you come to start them, and why are they important to you? I'm not sure, but I think it began with learning how to tie my shoes. Oh. What's your first contact with lines that are pliable, supple, and moving in space? When you learn how to walk and explore, and you come across lines, maybe they're electrical lines that are trailing from lamps, and you pull on them and see what they are and what happens. Maybe they're... Uh, Mops sitting in the corner that someone's cleaned the floor with. Look at lines that are moving in space. And as a child, I tried to follow those lines, and I've been doing that ever since, those lines moving in space. And without getting electrocuted, <laughs> sometimes touching them and realizing that the lines might even have tactile qualities, texture, the game gets really interesting. And if you sit on your grandpa's lap and he has a beard, and you touch it, it gets really interesting. All of these intermingled lines and threads and hair. And if they start combing your hair as it grows, and then they start to clean the brush after they've combed your hair, and they leave it on the table before they throw it away, which is kind of sad. <laughs> you start thinking about that, and you start in getting deeper and deeper into what becomes textiles, because you start getting dressed, and you start feeling and touching things. It can be handkerchiefs that they stuff in your pocket, when you're going to school, did they stuff a hanky oh, yeah. in your pocket? Yeah, I remember that. And you got very fond of that hanky? And you remember how it felt, and there was like tactile memory. And you used it, and it got even more tactile? And there was that. <laughs> and then it rains and pours like today, and you run around grabbing things to put on because they have permeable, impermeable potential, all the story is getting complicated because now you're realizing you're enveloped by and dependent on daily, intensively on things that have to do with threads and yarns and lines and pliable umbrellas. Incredible. How can you not be aware? So that's where I got sort of lost in that trench or that ditch. And I've been squatting in that ditch ever since. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, no, no. So, the, so you started making them in Nimes. It almost sounds like you're saying in part because they were so tactile and so. Well, I didn't start calling them Nimes until I was maybe 50 years old. Oh. I mean, minimes is a French word for meaning something small. And people, as I was making these little things, tchotchkes or whatever you want to call them, <laughs> objects, okay, 
And people ask me, why don't you show them? And that's kind of silly. So pin them on the wall and, and, or leave them on the table. And art critics, so dangerous, start giving them names. And they would call them miniatures or small works. Sound very pretentious, small works. You know, like you're going to an architecture meeting. <laughs> and I had to find, I was in the foyer lobby waiting for my grandson's performance at school in Paris. And there was a word posted, something about minims. It was a word I wasn't familiar with, but it just stuck. Ah. I thought, that's it. That's the name of what I'm making. And I, it's, it seemed appropriate. So they're all about, you know, about yay big, the size of a human hand, maybe a little bit wider, a little bit. Size of this book. Yeah, so why that size? What about that size has kept you engaged for so many years? Because it fits on your lap, under your coat. You can hide it and take it with you. You can steal something when you're in a... <laughs> <laughs> Just slip it on your... Under, you know, your... <laughs> and then uh, when you wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning because you're on jet lag, and rather than turn on the television and listen to things that are cause you to have nightmares, <laughs> you sit and fiddle with it, fiddle with whatever you've foraged during the day. And, and you can intricately construct things that could become as big as the Eiffel Tower because you start small. All the architecture in Dallas that we're surrounded by started with a sketch on a tablecloth by some architect or some would-be architect or some entrepreneur who decided he didn't need an architect. <laughs> and he'd figure it out himself. And then when he went bankrupt, he'd start thinking, maybe I should have talked to an architect. Or <laughs> So I, you know, I sort of start small, and as I get older, I get braver, and I get invited to do th impossible kind of adventurous things. Go to Dallas, Texas. We have a really nice garden right in the middle of all these glass monsters, and get close to the grass and figure it out and maybe something will occur to you. That's why I'm here, at your invitation. Thank you. So how often do you make menims now? I'm doing them all the time. Oh, all the, just constantly. I, I noticed your shoelaces. <laughs> and I'm walking around, look at her shoes right in the front row. We could take them and put them backwards and shove one inside. Can I borrow? <laughs> yeah, I should, I should note for people who don't know the Menims, often there is stuff within them. Piece of bone, for example. <laughs> like someone, it's not easy in the rain to walk around with these. <laughs> but I mean, they're kind of interesting because you might even put them together. Yeah. They're worn enough so they have a personality. 
you know, they're not out of North Park immediately. They've been warned. <laughs> <laughs> they've walked out in the mud and the rain, and they've had a life of their own for a few minutes, and now we're going to make them into art. Oldenburg should be here. <laughs> Which side do you like best? That one. No, the profile's great. Oh. Well, if you'd like my, I, I, I feel like I should take off my shoelaces and provide them, but I will, I will refrain. <laughs> Look at the soles. I've been walking out in the rain. Could be Japanese lacquer when you go to Japan and you see the simplicity, which the Japanese are experts at trimming down and uh, burrowing down into the essentials and doing beautiful lacquer work. There's some sculpture in your collection of that kind. So I'm doing them all the time. Mm. Uh, I'm thinking, that's the way I'm thinking. I'm, I'm a visual person, so don't take my words very seriously. <laughs> I'm always fascinated by artists who work at a range of scales. So the Menims are, are small scale, and then obviously you work in a very large, often decorative scale. So let's talk a bit about your interest in decoration. And I'm not interested in decoration. The, the French decorative tradition, it doesn't interest you? No. No? I'm interested in enhancing your environment in an exciting and passionate and beautiful and comforting way. Regardless of what it's called or what art historical tradition it fits into. Decoration sounds like a birthday cake. Well, that's what I was going to, I mean, that's why I brought it up, because there is this very American idea that decoration is to be resisted. You know, you have all of those abex painters and macho videos oh, getting the into fault the, of the Bauhaus. And uh, yes, I agree. <laughs> I mean, absolutely. So we're in the 100th anniversary all praising the Bauhaus, who threw everything in the trash this summer yeah. and trimmed down to two zeros, right? Yeah. Yeah, so America has always resisted the, the idea of the decorative, but there was always a room in French or Austrian modernism. The decorative tradition was so strong in those countries that those modernisms embraced it, Matisse or Klimt. And I guess at some point, even though you had a, a, a Yale MFA background, you decided that the austerity and you know, purity, air quotes, of, of modernism was to be rejected and that you wanted to embrace the idea you just described of, of, of wanting to bring spirit and life to spaces. Was that a transition or a process or did it just become evident to you as you played with materials or kind of how did you get from Joseph and Annie Albers to? How I got from Annie Albers was I took a bus um, <laughs> because Joseph took me by force to his house to meet his wife who was not on faculty at Yale, but who was... No women right. taught at Yale when I was at Yale. And they reluctantly let a few women into the school, into the drama school, into uh, architecture, there were two. So there were very few women. And so imagine how we dressed, not to call attention to ourselves. In 1954, I went to the army surplus store. I put all my monogram sweaters in the closet. I didn't even have a closet, I had a rack. I didn't have, we didn't have dormitories. The women at Yale at that time had nothing. I dressed in army surplus. I went to the classes not knowing what I was up for. I had never heard of the Bauhaus when I checked in. This is kind of stupid, isn't it? No, this is great. 
and I think young students today, everyone's riding them all the time. Where do you want to go to school? What do you want to study? They're supposed to figure all that out when they're only 17 or 18 or 19 years old. They're just, they're going to walk out in space and they're going to become the victims of chance. And I am an example of, primary example, a victim of chance. I didn't know where I was going or what I was doing, but when I heard a German accent, because my grandfather reminded me of my grandfather, when I heard a German accent, I did what I was told to do. <laughs> did you? I, I never heard German accents when I was Kid? a youngster in San Francisco. San Francisco was not full of Germans in the 1970s. So they were speaking to you in British English? Yeah, kind of with, you know, a little West Coast, uh, little West Coast drawl, dude. Like that way. Like a little, a little surfer. I lost the subject, to tell you the truth. <laughs> well, I, <laughs> you were, we were talking about the, 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 the large works you do, and, and a commission you fulfilled for a Gordon Bunshaft building in Dallas in the 1980s has been remade for a piece that's here at the Nasher. It's called Interchangeable Warp and Weft. Do you and know what warp and weft are? Yeah, they're in, in weaving. No? Which is the warp and which well, is the weft? Well, that's the part I don't know. <laughs> so they're interchangeable because? There's an art critic, Arthur Danto, who wrote a text about Gre Greece and about how the Greeks dealt with weavers and weaving which we used in this book. And the first meeting, he came, we had a meeting, and he said, okay, let's get down to the basics, the warp and the weft. I think I got it. I think I understand it. But what about this thing called the woof? <laughs> you ever heard that word? No, not, not only in relation to dogs. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody know what the woof is? The warp, anybody know what the warp is? Anybody know what the weft is? Okay, so now we're into Agnes Martin. We're sort of into the grid. You know, sort of the verticals and the interlacing horizontals. And maybe the woof is something in between, might start being the surface and the textures, the sort of Maybe we get to tufting, or maybe we get to knotting, or maybe we get to all these spin-offs of threads moving around doing acrobatically different things. Well, while we're talking about the interchangeable wharf and weft piece, one of the things... Take a weaving and turn it sideways. All the medieval tapestries were woven sideways and back to front. Really complicated. Imagine all these battles and colossal unicorn tapestries and things. Think about how they made them. They're not made like painting, like a canvas that you approach and begin to paint, like Delacroix or someone else would paint. They're woven on uh, usually either what they call upright, you know, oat lease or bas lease, lease being the warp, the lease, and backwards with a cartoon, a gouache or a drawing, or indications, numbered cartoons. We think in computer society right now that we're into digital. The weavers in the Middle Ages, in the, in the, in the Moyen Age, Middle Ages, were using digital coding to weave tapestries. 
but by hand, of course. 113-779-1214. And then they would have uh, all the threads and the colors labeled and grab the little, or off into tapestry. A lot of people, when they start seeing what I do, immediately they want to talk about tapestry. I believe it. And you talk about decor and decoration. Well, what was the best and most appreciated and most used decoration in those periods? Tapestry. Tapestry. Huh? All of the chateaus, I mean, no, nobody had a decent chateau without tapestries. They were filled with, and of course, rolled up, supple, rolled up, stored, rehung, fiesta, next, you know, la fête de la république, all the tapestries come out. And then, of course, all the banners come out. That's it. So this is an integral part of our opening the closet, getting dressed in the morning, and then sitting in an environment and enjoying being enveloped by stories that are told with thread and yarn. Well, I think the material that interchangeable warp and weft is made from came from the Aubusson Tapestry Atelier in France, which has been around since the 16th century. The studio that helped me weave those bands, of yeah. course, went bankrupt. <laughs> Not because of my... <laughs> Your demands. <laughs> Your... They ran out of orders. Because, you know, the auditoriums that, are, that need acoustical properties, the glorious houses and estates that need to be enveloped in some kind of acoustical, beautiful, warm, environmental note of some kind, which I'm reluctant to call decoration, because decorators have a bad reputation. You get bills and bills and bills from decorators who are giving you advice. Well, inter interchangeable warp and weft and sentinel and saffron are both pieces that have taken other forms in other places. You've reused the material and remade them as new works. These are bands. Thank God he stays on track. You see, these are bands, just woven bands with two, two finished salvages. Yep. And then with the warp threads, once the wefts have completed their, their, their passage, are tucked in and inserted back into the warp structure. So it's nice, it feels like four-sided salvage finish, but we're cheating, it's only two salvage finish. And then these bands can be interlaced and they can go either way and they're interchangeable. The bands can either become symbolically the warp and they can insert the wefts or vice versa. I made six or eight panels out of these bands and we installed them in this building over here that is now a landmark building in Dallas. A Gordon Bunshaft design. Yeah, it was a Skidmore in Maryland. It's one of your early um, 84, I think. attractive skyscrapers that's become a kind of seedy looking hotel right now. <laughs> right? I'm not sure. Is that the, I'm not sure. Well, when they transferred ownership, because even, can you imagine these skyscrapers transfer ownership or occupancy frequently? I never. Imagine that could happen. Once you build a building like a pyramid or a chateau, you don't imagine that uh, 20 years later it's going to change occupancy and ownership. And you tear out the decor. Which is so amazing to me that, any, that, that 
you got you fairly routinely get material back to do other things with. Little did I imagine that my I needed a loading dock. I didn't have a loading dock in my studio. I just have a simple studio in an old paved court, courtyard in, in, in Paris. We don't have a loading dock, but there are boxes coming and going of things made for certain places and coming back because those places are changing. So was getting those boxes what, 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 what gave you the idea, if you will, that it's perfectly fine, if not ideal, to reuse old it, works? Isn't our or whole was... necessity today learning about up? Up using, if you up will. Upcycling, yeah. you know, recycling, upcycling, and finding ways to use and not destroy things, especially if made by hand, if made with loving care by hand. One of the other things I wanted to ask you about is the relationship between your work and faith traditions, religious traditions. Oh. You've made a number of They're interchangeable sometimes. I, I, I would agree. How do you spell faith? F-A-I-T-H. And how do you spell fake? F-A-K-E. How'd they get so close? <laughs> I feel like I should be calling up the Oxford English Dictionary while we're sitting up here, and maybe we'd all learn something. <laughs> when you smile and speak, words get joined sometimes. And everyone ingratiates themselves by smiling when they're speaking to you. And I have such a hard time understanding what they're saying, because I've lived for 50 years in Paris. And I don't understand half of what's being said. <laughs> <laughs> and now I'm coming back into the States, you know, and doing shows here, enjoying it. But I admit I only understand about half of what's being said. How many, how many languages do you speak now? Half speak <laughs> French, English, and Spanish. It's pretty good. And a few other odds and ends. But when people come up and start smiling and speaking to me, it's a big, anyone else have that problem? Especially service staff, when you're in a restaurant or when you're in a public space or taxi drivers and things. Do you get it the first time? I'm start, I thought I should attribute this to age. You know, getting on there and having, they think people think I'm hard of hearing or uh, I'm not on the, you know. <laughs> but it, communication is tough. And language is tough. And people usually don't even say what they mean. <laughs> we could, we, we, that's why we have art. We, we, we can just communicate visually. Art. Yeah, we can just look and let things communicate that way rather than having to hear. Except art's being invaded by the artists who want to do it audioly. They want it to have sound, you know, bring sound. Is Venice Biennale? No, you've just come from Venice Biennale. How much of the Venice Biennale, normally or usually a visual art manifestation, how much of it is audio or video? In this Biennale, probably 30%. 30%? Yeah, I'd say. At least? So at least. I wanted to ask you about your prayer rugs. In the you see, we're back to faith and faith. <laughs> <laughs> So, so in the mid-60s, you made a series of works called Prayer, Prayer Rugs, called Prayer Rug. 
you made a number of works called Ascension. Yesterday, when you and I were talking, you referred to one of the works here, the long-hanging white piece called Marier. You referred to it as an Ascension. Called, called what? Marier? Marier? Menier. 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 It's in Breton. In Brittany, they have these stone erect standing stones, stones. Standing stones. And they call them Menier. But you also referred to it yesterday as an ascension. And I, so my, my, this is a long way to my question, which is why in the 1960s and indeed since, at a time when artists weren't interested in making art that referenced faith traditions, were you interested in things like prayer rugs and ascension? How can you eliminate someone like Rothko? Well, but he's not, he was being maybe more metaphysical than specifically referencing a specific faith. Wasn't he the son of a rabbi? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I, I, I don't think of those. I, I don't know if I think of those as being particularly. What about this chapel over in? Houston. Not spiritual? Spiritual, but not a specific kind of spiritual. Not specifically open, referring open to Christianity. Open-ended yeah. spiritual. Not a specific kind of sort of. Open. That's the name of my show right now in Miami. It's called Campo Abierto, Open Field. It's a spiritual quest of open field. As I'm trying to avoid speaking about politics, so I come at it diagonally or peripherally. But my work, a lot of people think, is abstract. Did you think it was abstract? I think there's, abs there's abstraction there. <laughs> it's all representational in a very subtle way. So Ascension uh, is exactly where I'm going, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> well, if we see Meneer, if we think of it as representation. Meneer is the white linen right. column Hanging in the down. first room here. If we think of your work as representational, is there a specific way we should think of that work? Should we think of it as a waterfall? Should we think of it as... as Not a specific way. Each, I would say, campo abierto. Each person sitting here has the right, democratically, that's where we are, to think about it the way they want to think about it. I add, I make things, and then I add titles. I don't start with the title. I make something I feel and want to see, see is the important part. And after see, I want to see and feel, feel meaning symbolically, I want to feel it. I want to feel connected to it. I want a certain dose of passion involved and certain dose of eagerness to communicate. And then the title comes later. And some people I know, each has their right to see and think and feel as they, and they shouldn't read too many art critics who tell them how to see. <laughs> so don't you agree? I do agree with that. Because I mean, here you've got a bright fellow, but there are few other characters wandering around out there that are misleading us, wouldn't you say? I like the, I, I think there's great fun in the open-endedness of, of looking at a work such as the one we're discussing and 
finding things in it and finding connections to art historical traditions. You have, quite recently, last year in Belgium, hung a, a piece that hangs down or appears to hang down and flow in a body, over a body of water at the Horst Festival in Belgium. Good uh, for you. That's, re <laughs> that's real research because... Uh, <laughs> Tyler. <laughs> and, and so I started thinking about those pieces in the context of, of water and waterfalls. And I don't know that I would have gotten there with those works until you installed them that way. And I, I guess I wonder if they live as waterfalls in your mind a little bit. Anyone been out in the garden in the rain? I did something I've never done before. So I'm still sort of puzzled about it and not quite sure about it. And it's bound to be a pain in the neck for the maintenance people here. And it has to do with taking soft lines of fabric and wrapping them in circular motions around the trees over on the right-hand side of the garden. It has something to do with waterfall. It's on the ground. And it's as though it's puddles. Puddles where? At the base of the trees. At the base of the trees. Puddles, but if it's there for four months, maybe the grass will grow in the interstices in between. The circular textile sort of snail-like snail circles. I'm trying something out there. And the word you are asking about is ascension. Yeah, that too. Okay, we're on the ground. We're eight years old, and we've got 20 other little kids with us who are eight years old, and they're all walking along the path there. And they're gonna see, what are they gonna see first of all? Not the trees, not the sky. They're watching where they're walking. They're gonna see something on the ground. They're gonna be drawn over there to see by those trees. And they're gonna see those trees are majestic, important. They're gonna see those trees like no one has ever seen those trees before. Those trees are really special. And they're walking around and even walking in circles now around the trees. And then they look up. And so I'm pulling the vision. First of all, I'm, ground, I'm grounded. That's where I am. We all are today, grounded. And we're spiraling up. So it's even a grounded sculpture on the ground. Call it a sculpture. That's very daring <laughs> to call that a sculpture. It's discovery, if you please, of how to go up. Start by looking at the ground and where you are, figuring it out, enjoying it. Most of all, enjoying it. Go back to when you were very, very young and enjoy every day in the way you used to know how to do. And then move with it and keep moving and you're gonna hit the sky. You're gonna see a few skyscrapers that look menacing, <laughs> but you're under the trees and you're protected. And the reason you're protected is because you're in that magic circle. That also sounds like it could be, so you've, you've made a number of pieces in the last 20 years or so that both hang vertically and then when they meet the ground, they flow horizontally. You know, they just have this big sweeping... Gravity. Yeah, and the, but, but not, not just the gravity, but you, you are happy for the pieces to lie on the ground and extend into the room 10 or 20 feet. And it sounds like you like for visitors to kind of think of those 
metaphorically, you know, that you approach something on the ground and then can go up, and, or, or, or your eyes can start up at the top and then, and then come to where we are. And then come down and get real. You know, we're walking in museums and looking at paintings that we're supposed to honor and obey on the walls. And then something comes down, hits the floor, and enters your domain. Be careful, don't step on it, and get real. And think about where you are and what you're doing. And, and then think, is this art? Keep asking yourself, is this art? And keep asking yourself, well, what is art? Have you figured it out? Art can be a lot of things, depending on what the people who make it decide it's going to be. <laughs> or the ones who receive it. Yes. Well, let's talk about the materials you use. You use, you've used a little bit of everything over the years, a range of textiles, and you always have used a lot of materials. And I want to just throw out a couple of materials, specific textile materials, and maybe you can tell us what you like about them or what about them you find useful. So maybe a, one to start with would be silk. What about silk do you like? What does it provide to you? How many you got on the list? I'll, I'll do four. Which ones are your favorite ones? Wool, linen, silk, and we'll do cotton. Do you have an order? Silk first. And then? Wool, linen, cotton. I think North Park was built on a cotton plantation. Cotton field. Yes. Cotton field. Yes. Wasn't it? Yes. Built on a cotton plantation. I mean, we're all here thanks to that. And the Mississippi and the whole region, cotton. But you want to talk about silk. Let's, well, we'll, we'll get to cotton, but yeah, let's do silk first. What, yeah, what in, what does silk do that you like? Why do you like using silk? Where did you see silk in this exhibition? I did not, but I know you've used it a lot, in, in the Minimes, for example. So we're back to those little works, you know, in the book that's passing around. Did someone take it home? Okay. Okay. There's no silk in this show. No. We can talk about silk if you want to talk about silk. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have anything in your wardrobe made of silk? I don't. That's probably part of why. Oh, I probably have ties that are made of silk. I probably have a necktie of silk. Real silk? Like some old family things, yeah. You inherited? Yeah. Yeah, because, you know, it's kind of behind us now, silk. Yeah. It's, well, a, it's associations. Silk associations are the aristocracy, wealth, history, you know, the Orient, the Far East, the silk, the mythology and everything surrounding the silkworms and the cocoons. All this is exciting. But Al hasn't got much to do with this show. There's linen in this show. There you go. There's lots of linen. And France is a linen-producing country. Belgium, France, Italy, Chile. And I discovered linen. I didn't know linen as a hmm. living in the United States and going to school here. And then when I left, went to um, Latin America, fell more into the territory of llamas and guanacos and vicuñas, into the wool story in the Andes in Latin America. And then when I went to France and started living and working in France, I sort of discovered linen and really went for it, as you can see in this show. In the very big room where all of the other sculptures displayed, 
the one work that I show, the primary work in the one work I show is of linen. Upstairs. Upstairs. It looks so great on the travertine, is that marble wall in this museum? It has to stay here somehow. <laughs> That's the thing I'll think about when I fall asleep on the plane this afternoon, is I'll think about that on that wall. It's in such good company, and it looks so beautiful there. Not just because I made it, you know, I'm very impartial. <laughs> Back to linen. Linen is a beautiful material. It's dry. It behaves itself. It doesn't uh, lose its personality. When you use it and work with it, it has a very, very strong personality. People don't like to wear it because it wrinkles. You sit in linen trousers or you sit, have a linen jacket or a linen shirt, you're reluctant to take it with you in your suitcase because you know it's going to be wrinkled. And you don't want to travel with or have to go someplace with an iron, right? So this thing about always having to be impeccable and no wrinkles and no creases, that's kind of sad because if you take a piece of paper, which has sometimes cotton base, the book you're passing around is cotton fiber, the paper. But take a piece of paper and punch it. That's what happens when you do this sometimes to linen. And then you open it, if it's a woven linen, warp and weft, both linen, and then open it, and then it becomes a plane, but it has shadows, has creases. It has a real lively sort of surface, not like a flat painting that is stretched around wooden stretchers, you know. Oh, I've got linen right here. When you take this and stretch it around wooden stretchers, it's got a taunt. So now you're into the whole textile field about tension. So with linen, you can stretch it. And this, these could almost be like linen walls stretched on stretchers. So linen, I really fell in love with when I got to France. And I bought, instead of ordering linen from suppliers, I would be visited by people who were selling breasts, leftovers from, it's the fashion industry, which is very, very active in France. So suppliers and uh, manufacturers would come and say, leftover from the last season, we've got all these samples of all these leftover materials. Do you want any of them? We'll give them to you for less than half price or for practically nothing because we've got to get them out of the warehouse out of the, to get ready for the next season. So I became part of the dumpster circuit. <laughs> And I'd say, yes, and, well, we've only got one kilo of this color, but we got three kilos of this color, and we got half a kilo, you know, I'll take it all. And then I started experimenting. That, you know, that helps to experiment when you don't have prefixed ideas, when you just have availability of something. So you can then start to play with it freely, and it's not costing you a fortune because you haven't paid $17 a pound for, and that, liberated me. Linen liberated me. And the eagerness of the suppliers of linen in France to get rid of their supplies and dump them in my studio uh, helped me make a lot of new things. And you've stuck with it all these years. You still they make... They keep new... at it. <laughs> but you could use anything you want practically now, but you still find... I, I am a bargain hunter. 
Ah. I'm not going to go and order this extraordinary silk from Japan just because of its prestige. I'd like to use some available materials. One of the Whenever I go to India, Morocco, or Peru, or somewhere, the first thing I look at are what are the obvious available materials in this place, and what are they making with it, and how can I maybe create my own creative input in some way? Can I work with them on what they have? That's what I did when you asked me about prayer rugs. Moroccan government asked me to come and look at their rug-making sort of workshops and to introduce ideas because they were eager to export more rugs. And so I looked at what they had, what their materials were. They had cotton warp, usually, wool, knotting, and weft. And I made rugs, and then I made rugs I could hoist on the wall. And all of them for me were a whole series of prayer rugs because of the tradition which I loved when at a certain moment of the day, everyone would take off their shoes and go and kneel on a rug, hopefully pointing it toward Mecca. But they'd get confused and sometimes they'd be bedlam the way, <laughs> the way the rugs were moving and pointing out of it. But they were all prayer rugs. And then it was nice the idea of taking and looking at the architecture of all the arches in the way that Marrakesh, you've been to Morocco, some of you, so you know, Fez, Meknes, they took me around to all the rug-making centers, the Ministry of Artisanat and the Ministry of Community Development. And I made ideas about rugs, and I called them prayer rugs. In a way, I was praying it was going to work. <laughs> well, it did. <laughs> we don't have one in the show. But in the book, little book, there's some photographs. Let me ask you another thing about the piece upstairs, the linen piece upstairs. There is a move that has been in your practice for a long time. Wait a minute. Mm -hmm. We did cotton. We did silk. We did wool. Wool. And we did linen. Yeah. OK? Yeah. OK. <laughs> so the, the, the piece upstairs, it has these strands of linen. But you know what we that... forgot? Are you interested? Most of this show is made out of a synthetic material. Yeah. Have you noticed? Uh, yes, the big piece. Everywhere, outside. The things on the columns, out by the cafe and toward the garden, those twisted vertical zips on the columns, the things that I mentioned of the escargot in the garden. This is a really interesting material. This is a material of our times. You might even be wearing some of that kind of material without realizing. <laughs> the, women, the women are in their underwear, probably. And these are these new man-made industrial fibers and fabrics. Where did you find them, or how did they come into your studio? Well, they're in our existence. You, 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 can't, you go to North Park, about half of it's going to be synthetic fibers and fabrics in imaginative versions, you know, some of it looks like leather, some of it looks like blue jeans, some of it looks like blouses, some of it looks like wedding dresses, but it's man, our civilization, we are making man-made, synthetic, interesting, industrial, revolutionary kind of waterproof, lightweight, non-creasable,
kind of things. And, and, and who in art world is not using all these new things? Venice Biennale, you said it was 30% digital and uh, how much synthetic mm. was it with artificial and synthetic materials? 80%? Might be that art is 80% where we're moving. You have an exhibition in the Annex Gallery upstairs? The one, the first gallery you walk into upstairs? How much of it is made of synthetic and artificial materials? Maybe 80%? It's interesting. Let's <laughs> conscious rise, huh? Did you ever have to think about whether or not you wanted to use synthetic materials or if you wanted to stick to natural materials? That's a kind of backward way of thinking. I mean, are we going to live today or are we going to live yesterday? So it's a step toward modernity in the contemporary step world. Step toward actuality. So I do. I want to ask one more thing about the piece upstairs with the linen. And so the linen is tightly wrapped by these bands of color. They're lines of color. Yeah, yeah, that of, go around. Of cotton, of embroidery cotton. And embroidery cotton that's used to embroider traditionally things like tablecloths. Yeah. Because then you can wash it and wash it and wash it, and the sun and the light don't damage. So that is a, a, a move that's been in your repertoire for, for years, wrapping linen with cotton. So you have these very tightly controlled areas in these looser flowing areas of linen. Reveal and camouflage. Reveal and camouflage. So where does, does that come from the natural world? Does from it life. Women are very covert. <laughs> <laughs> You, you once called works with the, the, the linen bound with cotton lions. I didn't have any way of knowing what they should call, be called. And so people just walking into the studio would say, can you make me a wall of? And they were looking, searching for the word. What's the word? Right, Frank? So what are they going to call those things? Did you invent the word? Because <laughs> it's in French, it means. Well, it all—it's a, a kind of also kind of uh, tree that are that are these vines that grow from the ground up into trees that are kind of I don't know about the same width and circumference as the works you made, and so I thought maybe your use of the word Leon might have come. From... Must be from the associations that people have when they walk in my mm. studio and see us making. They're coming maybe from their chateau or their garden or their... People give names to my things. They, and I don't usually until I'm finished with whatever I'm doing. But you like the word? I think it's a great word and because I know virtually no French. I mean, you know, I have vaguely art historical French, right? I can understand. I can read painting titles and that's about it. Mm -hmm. But so when I tried to find out what a Leon was, the first thing that comes up when you look at Google are these reedy thick woody vines and it made me think that maybe those forms you borrowed from nature directly from nature i think people's imaginations associate it was gift gift by association where people started calling these things but you see here in america they like it in the gallery circuit and to something that sounds vaguely french like in restaurants <laughs> <laughs> So it works. And if you call them woody, reedy, kind of woodsy, I don't think they'd order it in the restaurant. 
the last thing I want to ask you about is a work over here in the lower gallery called To Take Roots. It's a canvas which has been diagonally wrapped. Actually, the title is in the original title, I have to tell you right away, on that same subject, not to lose that idea of titles, Cord Sauvage. They're called the title and the reference we always use in my studio and ever since I've been making them is Cord Sauvage. Cord, you know, just a cord. Gone crazy, sort of sauvage. Savage. The savage chords. And my grandson loves to come and work on them. And he comes and helps and sits there at the table and tells us his uh, adventures, who he's flirting with, and it's, he's 12. And he likes to integrate in the studio and talk to some of the young girls who are doing apprenticeship or something at the studio. And he wants to come over and wants to know, this week, anybody up to making chord sauvage? <laughs> He'll wander over on his Wednesday afternoon. So we call them Cord Sauvage. And they're endless. We love making them. I can see why. They, they're playful and gorgeous. And you're calling them? Well, I think the specific title of this one was To Take Roots. OK, so that seemed like a nice one. We put it in an art fair, right? We put it in an art fair in Basel, Miami, in FIAC. Uh, and uh, most of the visitors were American. They didn't, I think maybe they thought it was creepy to have these cord sauvage. If, and he, you know, if you have it in a gallery, they want to sell it. So put on a title that's not going to make people feel like it's creepy. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a nice title, too. It's, I mean, because the roots of that object are the canvas underneath the wrapping. There's no canvas. What canvas? You can see some canvas peeking out from under. You see everything peeking out. Yeah. Look in there. You've got all kinds of things. You've got all kinds of things inside. And, and I wanted to ask about that peeking out. What about? Now you see it. Now you don't. Yeah. Is that why? Now you want to touch it. There's now that Now you want there. to figure out what it is. So if they would, I mean, the people who were brave enough to come out today in the rain, and who are here, would the museum allow them to touch the cord sauvage <laughs> if they wanted to in the first gallery out here? Because it's really a kick. <laughs> I have to tell a story from, so, so Sheila was on the podcast about five years ago, and she told a story about how, you know, obviously people aren't supposed to touch the art, you know, when you see sculptures and stuff, but that one of the things you liked about bronze sculptures that were old was that you could see the history of how people had tactily interacted with them on the surface of the sculpture, that you could see, you know, with a 200-year-old sculpture in a park in France, what people had been drawn to, and that that helped make the old thing contemporary and tactile and revealed something about humans, too. That, I'm sort of like that. I've been touched. <laughs> That's probably a good place to stop. <laughs> Sheila Hicks, thank you. <laughs> That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.